Well, let's give them one more round of applause as they're heading out. I don't know why I ever sign up to speak after those kids, because there's no competing with something that cute. That's amazing. Uh, it's just really awesome to see. Well, this morning, I want to um, get us started here with uh, our scripture that we're going to read today, and that's Isaiah chapter 53. And I want to give you a question before I read the scripture, and that is, try to figure out, oh, I missed something. Oh, elementary kids to the gym. So that's up to grade five. There we go, to the gym. Awesome. All right. So we're going to read Isaiah 53, and the question is, try to figure out, try to figure out who Isaiah 53 is talking about. So you'll hear this description, and then try to think, who is this about? Isaiah 53. We'll start at verse 3. It says, he, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, you've heard it. It's a description Who does it sound like it's describing? That's the question. This is a... 
How many of you, you know the answer? You know the answer, right? He's like, I, I know how it works. Go to church, and the answer is always Jesus, right? Every, every question. We've been reading through the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, which uh, many of you have a copy of now. Uh, it was a free giveaway in the fall. And we've been reading through it with uh, my youngest, who's five. And when I read the story, it usually ends the story with a bit of a cliffhanger. It says, like, wow, this great thing happened and there was a leader and followed God and did all these things but in the future there'll come another one who will be even greater and even better and do greater stuff in this area and of course we always ask the question and who will that be well the it's the Jesus storybook bible so the answer is always Jesus right but it's it's interesting this passage of scripture Isaiah 53 sounds like somebody heard the story of Jesus and then decided to write a rather poetic um, retelling of the story of Jesus in their own words. That's what it sounds like. The only problem with this is this passage of Scripture was written over 700 years before Jesus was born. So this is what we call prophecy. Prophecy actually telling about future events before they happen. In this case, 700 years before they happened. Here's a crazy thought I had the other day when I was reading this. I thought, there's, it, in uh, the book of Luke, it talks about how Jesus gets up in his, the town where he grew up in, Nazareth. Uh, he would have spent some of his childhood, and, and he missed a, you know, he spent, he was born in Bethlehem, spent some time in Egypt, and then off to Nazareth. So most of his growing up years would be in Nazareth, and he gets up in the synagogue one day, and the Jewish synagogue, and he pulls out the scroll and he begins to read. And he's reading out of Isaiah 61. Now, interesting thing about a scroll, right? Uh, we, when I say scroll nowadays, we think of the mouse wheel, right? I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, right? Jesus would have had to be like, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. Anyhow, but the scroll of Isaiah was what he was holding. He was reading chapter 61, as we call it now, but he would have just been a little scroll away from this very description of his life. Now that's pretty surreal when you think about, I'm going to read what was written about me 700 years ago, and some of this hasn't even come to pass yet because I'm right in the midst of it. This would be amazing. Really an amazing uh, experience. But welcome to the wild and wonderful world of prophecy. There's so many prophecies in the Bible. There's so many prophecies in the Bible uh, that are written about the Messiah, the one who is, is yet to come. And, um, I, sorry, my notes are a little bit, how did I get them out of order here? But I'll get them back in order here. But it, the amazing thing about um, prophecies and their fulfillment is that um, the astounding astronomical odds of them ever being fulfilled. Let me, let me just get you familiar a little bit with the prophecies. Um, We've been actually posting them on our church Facebook page, if you haven't been keeping score here, but every week we've been posting, like, or every few days we post, like, a prophecy from the Old Testament, and then it's fulfillment in the New Testament. But, so, here are some of the prophecies that, that we've been talking about. One, Isaiah, we just read, he, in his scroll, he reveals the manner of Jesus' birth, that he would be born of a virgin. Again, 700 years before Jesus comes along. Micah, another prophet, he, he pinpoints the place of Jesus' birth, that it would be in Bethlehem. Again, way long before Jesus' birth. 
in the book of Genesis, one of the oldest books in the, in the Old Testament, and Jeremiah, they both specify his ancestry. The Messiah would come, he'd be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He'd be from a specific tribe, the tribe of Judah, and from the house and lineage of David. The Psalms, those are the, that's the biggest part, chunk of the Bible, the, the biggest title chunk, it's all songs. The Psalms foretold his betrayal, they foretold his accusation by false witnesses, and the manner of his death. It actually talks about how he was pierced in the hands and the feet. Now, this is even though crucifixion had not been invented yet. I mean, there was no Roman Empire when that was written. I mean, not an empire. They, didn't, they weren't in charge of the whole world. And they hadn't invented crucifixion yet. And hundreds and hundreds of years before that, it's written in the Psalms that the way that the Messiah would die, he would be pierced through his hands and his feet. And his resurrection is predicted in the, in, in the Psalms. It says that he would not decay, but he would ascend on high. There are prophecies in the Old Testament about uh, Jesus' opposition to Satan that were fulfilled. The fact that people would gamble to win his clothing at the cross that someone would precede him in the wilderness preparing the way for him, also known as John the Baptist, that he would live in Egypt for a while and come back from there, that he would be welcomed as a king riding on a donkey, that 30 pieces of silver would be paid for his betrayal, and there are more. So there's this guy named Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner, a math expert. I always think Stoner is an unfortunate last name if you're going to be an expert. Because uh, people might think other things about you. But if any of you are last name Stoner, please don't be offended at me. I don't mean anything. But Peter Stoner was this guy, and he actually sat down. To, he said, I'm going to try to figure out the odds. Do you have a math geek in your family? Anyone have a math geek in their family? They just enjoy math. Like, like income tax is a fun time for them or something. Like anyone, if you have one like that, there are just some of those people. And you know, Peter Stoner must have been one of these people. He said, I want to figure out the odds... I want to figure out the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies. He picked eight of the prophecies, and then he said he wanted to figure out the odds. And so here's his work. He said, first, the prophecy that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So he figured out the average population of Bethlehem, which about the time might have been about, he figured 7,000 people. And then the, uh, average, and then the population of the earth during the same period, uh, so it might have been from when the prophecy happened in Micah to then. I'm not sure. But anyhow, so he took 2 billion, divided by 7,000. And so he said, well, the odds of someone being born in Bethlehem in the world was 2.8 uh, times 10 to the fifth power. Anyhow, very, uh, you know, it's, Bethlehem people are, are rare. I'm not sure about that one. I still have to read that again. Okay, second one. Second one. A messenger will prepare the way for the Messiah. Okay. One man in how many, the world over? How many people have had a forerunner? You know, a, sort of like a John the Baptist, someone to prepare his way. He's, I thought he was quite generous there. He said, every thousand people have someone as a forerunner to prepare the way for them. Someone that could sort of fulfill this. I thought he was pretty generous with that. I don't know how many of you have had a forerunner preparing the way for your life. Maybe you did. Maybe someone came along and you were a big deal. Okay, number three. So he gave one in a thousand for that. The Messiah... The Messiah um, will enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. So how many um, people 
have entered Jerusalem as a ruler, riding on a donkey. Now, I think this is crazy. He said one in a hundred, so they must have had a whole bunch of different, he must have really included like, not just kings, but, you know, mayors and counselors and, and um, I don't know, school teachers. I don't know what he was included, but he must have included a lot of people to get to one in a hundred because that's, that seems crazy conservative to say that. Then he said, the Messiah will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. So how many people the world over have been betrayed by a friend resulting in wounds in their hands? He said, oh, it's probably one in a thousand. I think this is crazy conservative. That has got to be super rare. Betrayal by a friend and wounds in your hands. I mean, maybe, maybe. But how about the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? Of all the people who have been betrayed, how many have been betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver? He says, oh, I don't know, maybe one in a thousand. I think he's super conservative because I think it can't be that many. That's got to be super rare. But anyhow, we'll, we'll go with what he says. And then he says, how about the betrayed betrayal money will be used to purchase a potter's field, which is what Zechariah says and what happens later on in, in the New Testament. How many would be betrayed and then that money would be used to buy a potter's field? He says, well, that's got to be one in a hundred thousand. That's what he says. Super rare. The Messiah will remain silent while he's afflicted. How many people, when they are oppressed and afflicted, though innocent, will, will make no defense of themselves? He says, one in a thousand. He thinks it's that rare. And then finally, the Messiah will die by having his hands and feet pierced. How many people since the time of David have been crucified? That's what he said. So one in 10,000 is what he gets. Anyhow, he takes all these numbers and he says, if someone was to fulfill all eight of those prophecies, you remember the part of math class where you had to do all these probabilities? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and rarer and rarer and rarer the more things you put all together. Anyhow, the number he comes up with is one in 10 to the 17th power or one in 100 quadrillion. Not even sure. I just see a lot of zeros. <laughs> 100 quadrillion. Let me count them for you. 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 16, 17. 17 zeros. I guess that's 10 to the 17 power. Yeah, I forget math class myself. Okay. Some, another guy came along and said, if you took those odds, he said, how can you illustrate it for people? And this is an American because it's obviously an American example. He said, take the state of Texas and cover it in silver dollars. Now, this is totally American. It's as American as it gets, right? You know, cover it in silver dollars up to two feet deep. Texas, covered in silver dollars, two feet deep. Then send one dude in there and let him wander around for days. Wander around for days, and when lots of time is up, enough that he could have wandered anywhere in the state of Texas, then he reaches down without looking, stirs the the coins around and picks one up and it's the only one in the entire state of Texas that has a different year. Says so that's the odds we're talking about. Fulfilling eight of these prophecies is that rare. Lee Strobel in his book The Case for Christmas, some, we gave that out as another book giveaway and many of you have it. He, he said it's, it's like a fingerprint. You know how, you know, we have unique fingerprints and, you know, if we do crimes, then we can be <laughs> implicated by our fingerprints because of how unique we are. He says, 
this is like the prophetic fingerprint, and it is even more rare than a real fingerprint. It is so unbelievable and, and mind-boggling, the odds against being able to fulfill all of these prophecies. So people have tried to come up with theories. Of, well, how could, how could uh, you know, like, what kind of, you know, people are always coming up with conspiracy theories. Here's three of them. Maybe um, someone just accidentally fulfilled this. They just accidentally did all of these eight things. Well, it's more than eight things. There's a lot more. But maybe just someone accidentally fulfilled them. And I think we've talked about the odds, so let's just throw that one out. Because it's impossible, impossible odds for someone to accidentally fulfill them. There's only a few billion people on the planet, not hundreds of quadrillions. Okay, so just, I don't think that someone's going to accidentally fulfill these very specific odds. Especially, you know, people get into this one. If If you read Daniel 9, it talks about the timeline and people have really dug deep into that. I'm not going to do that today. About that it actually even had to happen in a set time period. So that even shrinks the odds even more. Or expands them. So, so isn't that someone could have accidentally fulfilled them? Well, what if, what if the followers of Jesus actually altered the gospel accounts to match the stories of the prophecies? What if they just rewrote the story so that it, Jesus, in the story, uh, matched up with all the prophecies? The thing about that is that the Gospels were written close enough to the real events that they were, this would be easily refutable. This would be easily refutable by Jesus' friends and by Jesus' enemies. So if you said, hey, yeah, Jesus did this prophecy, did this, and you itemized them all, you'd have people around who lived through all that, and they'd say, that's not true. So you'd have Jesus' friends and family members I think of James, who come, who's Jesus' younger brother, and comes to believe later that Jesus is the Messiah, though initially he's totally opposed to it. I understand why he's totally opposed to it. If any of my five brothers told me that they were the Son of God, I would not believe them. Oh, you met my brothers. That's why you're laughing. Right, you know. <laughs> what would it take for James to start to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Well... Maybe if Jesus told James exactly how he was going to die, and that exactly happened, and also told him that three days after I die, I'm going to come back to life, and I'm going to come visit you, and we're going to go to Tim Hortons together. And you're going to see, well, that's not in the story, you know that. But I'm going to come, like, it would take the resurrection for James to believe in Jesus. It would take... Astounding thing. So for people to say, well, they just changed the gospel accounts. Well, people are reading these accounts who were friends of Jesus, his closest friends. Some of them surely would say, hey, you're not getting this right. You're saying you're lying. Enemies of Jesus, for sure, they'd be like, we're trying to stomp out this Jesus movement. We, for sure, are going to point out the lies that are here. And frenemies of Jesus, like his brother James. Hey, this Christmas, you're going to tell a tall tale and one of your brothers and sisters is going to say, that's not how it went, because that's what we do as family. And here's another part of it. If you're writing one of the accounts of Jesus, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're writing it, like let's say Matthew, a follower of Jesus, who walked closely with Jesus, And you know Jesus didn't fulfill these requirements. You know Jesus didn't do these things. 
you know Jesus is a fraud? If you knew that, would you write that? Well, maybe you'd lie, but would you die for that lie? Not only would Matthew, well, not only would Matthew die for that lie, would all of the disciples be willing to die for that lie? Like, I get that people lie. Lots of people lie. But when push comes to shove, everybody who knows the truth is willing to die for that lie. Every one of those early disciples, all those early followers, are willing to lay down their life for something they know that is not true. It doesn't ring true. It doesn't ring Here's the other theory that probably stands out is, what if Jesus just set out from the very beginning of his life to try to fulfill all these prophecies? You know, what if he just started ticking them off? He read the Old Testament so he knew what he had to do. But there's just too much that can't be controlled. Like, how could he control that the Sanhedrin would offer 30 pieces of silver to Judas to betray him? Or that, how can he control he was born in Bethlehem? That's his mom and dad making that decision. We say, well, he was born in Bethlehem, and then he went to fulfill all those things. Well, there's still so much more. How could he have the right ancestry? Okay, well, what if he, he had the right ancestry, just happened to have it, and then he went out to set these things? Well, how could he die by the predicted method of execution that was written about him 700 years before he came along? How could he get the soldiers to gamble for his cloak? How could he make sure his legs were unbroken even though the soldiers on each side of him were? How would he arrange for his resurrection? How would he come back to life after being dead? When I read um, Isaiah 53, it really encourages my faith, to be honest. It's not just an incredible description of what Jesus has done for us. It's a it's a validation in a way of the reality of, uh, or, or validation of the accounts that we have, of the authenticity of, of what we have and what we look at when we study Scripture. Look at the New Testament. Look at, at the different um, ways that people re- reference back to Isaiah 53. First uh, Peter uh, 2.24, this is Peter saying, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 1.11, he says, the prophets sought to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It's an interesting thing. Peter's saying, When Isaiah is writing under the inspiration of of the Spirit of God, when he's writing these things, it's like he's aching inside, who am I writing about? Who am I writing about? I long to know who is the fulfillment of the words that I'm being given to write. What an incredible experience. Peter says they long to know. The Spirit of Christ in them gave them a hunger and a desire within them to know the one who would come. And it's only after Jesus comes that it's fully revealed who he is. In Acts 8, I'll I'll read you the story about the Ethiopian eunuch. It's it's a great story. Uh, Philip, it's about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury 
of the Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. So he's, he's, import, he's, he's, you know, the chief financial officer for the whole empire. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So he's got a scroll that he's scrolling through. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent. Does it sound familiar? He did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? So the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. I think there's... When people read this, and and if they have a pushback against Isaiah 53 about it maybe not being about Jesus, they really have two main go-tos. The one is to say, well, it's about himself. Isaiah's talking about himself, that he's the suffering servant. Or maybe it's about the nation of Israel. Maybe it's about the nation of Israel. But probably one of the biggest clues in the text to help us see that it's not about Isaiah and it's not about Israel is is, uh, found in verses um, 4 and 5. It says, surely he took up our pain. Remember, Isaiah is speaking to Israel. He's writing to Israel. And now suddenly he says, he's talking about someone else. Surely he, whoever that he is, that Isaiah doesn't know fully. But surely he was he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was persecuted for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. It's pretty clear that this is not about Isaiah, and this is not about Israel, but this is about another. So what do we learn from reading Isaiah 53. There's a few things. We learn some stuff about us and we learn some stuff about Jesus. The first thing is that, uh, well, maybe not the first thing, but one of the things we learn is, is about our condition. Verse 6 says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. This is the human condition when it relates to God, is that we're like wayward sheep or Rebel sheep, you could say. We're in rebellion towards God. We've, we've decided, no, I'm not going to go the way that God wants to guide me and direct me or set up for me or, he's, or the plan that he's created me for. I don't want that. I want my own way, thank you very much. And so we've gone our own way. Each one of us has gone astray. So that's the first thing is that we've rebelled against God. Now, rebellion against God can take different forms. It's really easy to see it when it's direct defiance, right? Like when you have somebody who just simply says, I hate God, or I don't want anything to do with God, or, you know, forget God, or whatever, or something more harsh than that. So that direct defiance is really easy to see. You say, wow, that person is in rebellion against God. But there's an indirect 
type of rebellion. It looks like indifference. And it doesn't actually feel like rebellion, but it is. It's where it's like you just sort of get on with life without God. You don't factor him into anything. You don't, you're not grateful to him. Romans 1 talks about that. That here is this created people who for, uh, totally exchange the glory of God for the glory of created things. It's sort of like they, 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 they take their gaze away from God and they just sort of hunker down in the here and now. I find that myself, uh, the more I'm in buildings and the less I'm in nature, I get sort of, nature's helpful to me. I don't know if anyone else finds that. It's helpful to me, right? I remember having a walk uh, down our block. Um, oh, this is a couple of years ago. And it was a starlit, beautiful night. But I didn't see it. I didn't know it was a starlit, beautiful night because we have really got nice street lamps at every little post. So as I walked down the block, I saw houses and I you know, saw sidewalks and concrete and street lights. And then I got to the end of the block, and sure enough, good old Moose Jaw, one of the street lights was burnt out. <laughs> and that was a godsend, because suddenly I saw what was absolutely breathtaking about it. It was just a beautiful, like the stars were just shining. But I couldn't see it until I got past the man-made stuff. I couldn't, once I got past the created stuff, I was like, oh my this is amazing. And I, I actually, I, I walked, so at the end of the block, there's actually, there's a, probably a spruce tree, super tall spruce tree that just like a finger that points straight up. It could be a church steeple for how holy that moment was. It was just pointing right at the stars and I was just like, <gasps> you know, I went from being like, how much is that house worth? Or, you know, what are they doing with their lawn? Or, you know, I, like just menial nothing to worship, to transcendence, to recognizing, oh God, look what you've done. It's amazing. The rebellious sheep is either defiantly shaking their fist at God or they're indifferently ignoring God. So it talks about our our condition. But then it talks about the one who's come to change that condition. It says in verse 3 that he was despised and rejected by mankind. So here comes this servant. Here comes this servant and he's a rejected servant. We're not impressed with him. We're not impressed with him. We're impressed by other things. You know, when Jesus comes along in his humility, in his servant-heartedness, it doesn't grab us initially. I mean, what are we impressed by? We're impressed by money. We're impressed by power. We're impressed by influence, popularity. We're impressed by dazzling good looks. This, this passage doesn't say he was super good looking. It says that we didn't esteem him. We didn't hold him. We didn't see the value of who he was at the time. It's sort of like, you know, in grade school, like how everybody treated each other. And maybe everybody treated each other nasty. Let's just say you're kids. You don't know any better. You treat each other really nasty. And one kid gets it. Let's just say one kid gets it. They like mature before their time or just something. The light bulb goes on and they start treating the outcasts in the classroom like human beings. But nobody else gets it for years. And then you come back to your class reunion 20 years later. 
And it's like every, all these outcast kids are like, oh, Cindy, you were so nice to us. We really appreciated you. And here you are as adults going, we were dopes. We were jerks. We didn't understand that Cindy's humble approach, even though she could have been an A-lister, she just went and, and hung out with the kids who were ignored. We didn't understand that Cindy's way was better. But now we see it. And I think that something like that happens with Jesus. We say, I want power. I want to follow leaders who's the, who are the man, who, got it, who, who have flash and style. And we didn't realize that all of that pales compares to the substance of the humble servant who comes. The rejected servant. We not only find out that Jesus is a rejected servant, rejected by the creation that he's made, re- rejected by us rebel sheep, we also find that he's a willing substitute. Verses 3, 4, 6, 10. Listen to these. He's a willing substitute. It says, He, he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. Look at verse 6. It says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 10, it says, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And all the Lord, although the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. You know, instead of crushing us for our sins, you know what God does? God sends Jesus. He concocts a plan to make us right with him. And then Jesus, instead of crushing us, Jesus embraces the Father's plan so that he will be crushed. You know, the message of the Bible, uh, when you go through it from beginning to end, it's, it, it's all about, well, I mean, it's a big part of it is the substitution. When I was a kid, I grew up in a small church um, we were the only kids in the church. It was mostly older people in the church, and we sang lots of cool older songs. So I know a lot of cool older songs. One of the cool older songs we sang when we were young had lines like this. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sin away. We sang that song a lot. It stuck. It stuck. I needed someone. I needed a substitute. I need someone, see, I, we can't save ourselves from our sin, right? Not only have we done things, have we gone astray, but we have a going astray heart. We're born with it. We need somebody to come along and say, listen, you can't pay this debt. You can't fix this wrong. You can't atone for your sin, but I will. And Isaiah 53 spells that out so clearly that that's what Jesus did for us. He came as a willing substitute and took that, uh, he took all of the blame, the shame on himself so that we could be made right with God. In the history of Israel, no one comes close to fulfilling this prophecy except for Jesus himself. And you know I love how it just spells out the story of what he's done for us. But you know, you can, you can take that whole story and you can, you can condense it down to sometimes just such simple words. I love how John 3.16 just condenses it so well for us. Let me just read it to you. It says, For God so loved the world. That's all of us. 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know what you can do with that? Uh, it's, you can see that, maybe pull that up on the screen there. Um, what if you just put your name in there? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that if, that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. It's really that simple. God loved you. He set a plan in place to bring you back into relationship with him. What he gave was his son as a substitute in your place. So that if you trust in that work that Jesus has done, that sacrificial work, that substitution work, that Jesus paid the debt I couldn't pay. I owed a debt I couldn't, I couldn't pay, and he paid a debt he didn't owe. He took my place. I'm trusting in what he did to make me right with God. Lots of people have built all sorts of systems on how to be right with God. They don't work. So God built a plan. It does work. Jesus taking our sins upon himself so that we can be made right with God. Would you stand with me? sure the worship team will come back in just a few seconds but just I want to just I don't know where you're at this Christmas season I don't know where you're at maybe you're just zoned in on the things to come and Christmas gatherings and presents and all this the best present you could have at Christmas is the gift of God best thing you could actually have in your life is the gift of God of his grace his forgiveness his leadership in your life that's the absolute best God, gift you have. But it's, it's something he offers, but it's something we have to receive. We say, when we say, yes, God, you, you offer your forgiveness. I know that my sin needs to be atoned for. I know that I can't atone for it, but you can do it. When we say yes to God in that regard, the best gift you can ever have, relationship with Jesus, relationship with God the Father, eternal life, can be yours. Would you pray with me? Lord, I don't know where everybody's at here today, but I pray if there's even one or, or two that are here that they've never made that declaration that they belong to you. I pray right now that they'd be just uh, able to do that, to say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours. Forgive me of my sin. Lead my life. Uh, I turn my life over to you. Lord, I pray that uh, as you uh, take us through this season, this whole Christmas season, I pray that we, we wouldn't be, all of what you've done for us and who you are would not be lost in the confusion, in the busyness, in the looking at what man has created. We forget what you have done. So Lord, would you just remind us again and again that you are the one who made us and who bought us back again by your son. In your name. Amen. I'm just going to turn things over to the worship team. They're going to lead us, and let's, we'll sing one last song together.